The New Testament reading today comes from the book of Philippians in chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. And let's pray again together as we approach the mighty word of the Lord together. Father, we bow before you today. We submit to the authority of your word, and we pray for the divine assistance of your Holy Spirit that he himself would be our teacher. We ask, Holy Father, that you'd search us and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us, that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive and to obey. For we pray it in your name, Lord, and now may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts this day be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, for we pray it through the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Well, looking today at uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 8, Uh, for this fourth Sunday of Advent. And Paul's message to the Corinthians was so arresting that he had to say it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it to you, Philippians. Rejoice. And I can imagine the Philippians hearing this letter for the first time, asking themselves, surely Paul doesn't expect us to rejoice all the time. Surely he doesn't expect me to be happy all the time. After all, there's a season for everything. There's a time to break down, and there's a time to build up. There's a time to weep, and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. A time for war, and a time for peace. And I think the apostle expects a certain incredulity from the people of God when he says this, and so he says it two times. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, church, I say it, rejoice. And the Greek word here that Paul uses leaves no room for mental gymnastics. Pantata here in the Greek really means always. At all times and in all places, the people of God should be a rejoicing people. Joy is to be always in season, Paul says. The other day I was driving through the orchard and I saw a worker pruning an apple tree in the freezing cold. I didn't know before that the winter was an appropriate time to prune, but uh, beside that I was momentarily lost in the thought of the striking metaphor that the fruit tree is in the winter. Something that at one time is so very pregnant with life, now cold and barren and dead and fruitless. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us feel this at times, and we can relate to this metaphor, those experiences, when we feel much more dead than we do alive. 
much more cold than we do warm. What is more gentle than a wind in summer, said the poet John Keats. And wouldn't it be lovely if all of us experienced nothing but the warm and the gentle breeze of summer in our souls? But all of us know the feeling of the Arctic icy blast. All of us know deep within the experience of the raging storm. We all know the winter of our discontent. How is it then that joy is to be always in season, Paul? Joy, which is a fruit of the Spirit, how does that fruit hang prosperously from the tree in a freezing climate that mitigates against it? Paul isn't recommending in the least that Christians should be those kinds of people who walk abroad with a perma-smile. Paul knows very well the experience of heartache. He knows what it feels like to be afflicted. And it's a mistake to think that Paul was smiling when he received on those five occasions the 40 lashes minus one. Even if he rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus, it's a mistake to think of Paul just laughing through it as his nerves and as his muscles and as his tendons were laid bare to stroke after stroke after stroke. Paul knows very well how painfully difficult human experience can be. And Paul knows the Psalms all too well to suggest otherwise. The Psalms that are that prayerful compendium of true human experience. They teach us how to pray. They teach us how to communicate ourselves to God, how to be human, how to be transparent, how to be honest before the Lord. My heart throbs, says David to God. My strength fails me. God, all day I go about mourning. I am feeble, Lord. I am crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. This is Holy Spirit-inspired prayer. This is prayer given for our instruction. And can you imagine the Apostle Paul walking up to David as he's on his knees before God and saying, oh, David, you ninny. Don't you know, David, that you need to rejoice? It's a command after all, David. Stop that pathetic moaning. Turn that frown upside down, David. Go get yourself a tambourine and change your tune to praise, David. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying in the least that we ought to walk around doer. There's a baptism of the doer spirit that's nothing but ungodly. We can attempt to be gruff and grim and gloomy in the name of the Lord, and we can claim such surliness as a fruit of the Spirit. But that just won't do. In the terms of the Dickens Carol, and I trust some of you are going to read that again this Christmas, in the terms of, of Dickens' Christmas Carol, we should be those people who exude the festivity of the second spirit not the gloom of the first or the second. We should have a sparkling eye, an open hand, a cheery voice, a joyful air. We should be those who say to those who come to us, come on in and know me better, man. In fact, I think we should have that as a slogan on our website, come in and know me better, man and woman. We are a people of the feast, not the fast. 
We sit on the throne of plenty, that cornucopia of plenty, even as that spirit did in Dickens' Carol. But certainly Paul doesn't mean when he speaks of unceasing joy that the genuine complaints that we find in the Psalms are somehow disjointed and out of place. When the psalmist laments often with a how long, O Lord, we mustn't imagine Paul wagging his head in disapproval. Oh, if only you knew the joy of the Lord. That's not what Paul means by rejoicing always. It's not a denial of the human experience of trouble and anguish, but it is an affirmation that Christian joy can thrive anywhere. It's not a frail and temperamental plant. It's a fruit that can grow and flourish even in the most bitter temperature of the human soul. Even in the ice of sorrow, it can thrive. And even in the flames of hot temptation, joy, Paul says, can flourish. And what Paul means to say to us today in Philippians that in the wake of the event of Jesus Christ, even the winter of our despair can become the spring of hope. Even the season of darkness can become the season of light. We can have nothing before us and live as if everything is before us. It can be the worst of times. And yet Paul says it can be the best of times. Joy, deep-seated, life-giving, even ecstatic delight, inexpressible and incontainable happiness is something that is promised to every believer in Christ. And the key here that Paul gives us today is that such rejoicing is rejoicing in the Lord. You see, if we attempt to drum up the Christian experience of joy outside of the source of joy, it will seem real to neither us or to those around us. Trying to be happy generally is a bad idea. We'll fool no one. It's like those perfume bottles you'll see in some restrooms. <laughs> you push it and the spray goes out and it gives an artificial, even sickly, flowery scent that does nothing but add to the pervasive bad scent. <laughs> Whereas before you had a bad aroma, now you have a flowery bad aroma and it fools no one. And putting on a happy face smells like flowery rot. But there's a joy, Paul says. There's the real thing, a genuine joy, and it can be possessed at any time, Paul says, in any circumstance, and it's not something you drum up. Rather, it flows out of us through an encounter with the living God. And really then, Paul isn't saying that the Philippians should be directed to joy as much as he's saying that you should be directed to the source of joy, that is Jesus. In all of your sorrow and your affliction, in dealing with the all too mutable and unreliable self, faithful in one moment, fickle at another, in dealing with this crooked and twisted generation which takes its toll on all of us as Paul lays out in chapter three, those who are enemies of the cross, those who make you to feel most poignantly their animosity. Behold, Paul says in Romans 8, we are like sheep being led to the slaughter. We're being killed all day long, he says. In the face of those whose God is their belly, 
whose glory is their shame, whose minds are set on earthly things, in wrestling with all of the sorrow and the hardship that comes from this living world, fix your eyes on Jesus, Paul says. And in the midst of trouble, you will discover an unstoppable force of joy, a stream, a river, a reality that will not be denied. Well, that sounds wonderful, Paul. I'd like a little bit of that joy, but how do we do it? How am I supposed to fix my eyes on Jesus? Well, Paul has only one answer today, as did his disciple, John Calvin. We are not made of iron, writes Calvin, so as not to be shaken by temptations. But this is our consolation. This is our solace to disburden in the bosom of God everything that harasses us. Whenever we are assailed by any temptation, let us betake ourselves immediately to prayer as to a sacred asylum. <laughs> There's only one sure refuge, says Calvin, and it's leaning upon the Lord in prayer. And Paul's answer to us today is very simple. The joy, the peace, this reasonableness, he says, this moderation that is the calm presence of mind in the face of so much antagonism, this is all a product of looking to the Lord in prayer. Prayer, says Paul, is the great exchange. We pour out everything that harasses our souls, everything that comes against us, and God gives us this joy and this peace and this power of mind in return. In that experience, Paul says, God will give you a holy calm that will surround you. It will guard you like a hedge. No matter what is raging outside, it's supernatural, Paul says. It's not merely some psychological experience that prayer is good for you, says the psychologist, because you can vent yourself. No, says Paul, there's something supernatural going on here. When you go to the Lord in prayer, God takes all of that poison and doubt and affliction inside as you, as you disburden yourself. And he breathes something into its place. And all of us today need our imaginations to be baptized once again. All of us need our holy imaginations to be kindled with this truth that when we approach God in prayer, we are proceeding into the profound reality of supernatural mystery. We are entering into the thick cloud of God when we pray. When we go into prayer, we are meeting with the divine life in a way that is imperceptibly profound. We are in time and space, and yet we are not in time and space. For many of you today, I think you can say with me that some of the moments in your life have been the most profound when burdened with care and afflicted with anxiety and dread and unrest. You've gathered yourself in God's presence and you've poured out your soul before him and you are given a peace and a calm and a quietness that no one can possibly describe, and there's nothing like it. 
There is nothing like it in this life. There is no good on this earth that can compare with the experience of meeting the living God, becoming aware of his sovereign spirit overshadowing us. I'll be very honest with you that we've had moments in our prayer meeting at Christ Church as we pour out our souls to God for the people of Christ Church. There's been moments in these prayer meetings where there's been a palpable and sweet awareness of the living God. And I've thought to myself in the midst of it, there's nothing better in life than this. The presence of the living God surrounding us in prayer. And so my brothers and sisters, very simply today, I want to ask you this one thing. Why is it that we do it so little? Why is it that we devote such a small portion of our life to prayer when it's the most profound thing we can enjoy on this earth? Nothing, says Calvin, is more foreign to the human mind than in the depth of despair to feel hope. In the depth of poverty to see riches. In short, nothing is so rare than to see a man in the depth of weakness to rejoice in the promise that he will lack nothing even when he is robbed of everything. This understanding, he says, is only by the grace of God. And it is maintained in us only by the Spirit of God. And my brothers and sisters, today Paul says to us, such a rare posture of soul is only given to the person of prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, Paul says. In all of your concerns, In all of your affairs, across the whole of your day, go to God in prayer, in requests, in thanksgivings, and he will give to you that which the world knows nothing about. My peace I give to you. I don't give it to you as the world has it. I give it to you as only I can. And he will give you joy unspeakable and full of glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.